bed unplugged this morning. And I notice I'm uh, unpulpited this morning. So I'm going to stand down here since there's a, a smaller crowd. And uh, if you notice that myself and Allison, we look a little bit stressed today. We have a very good reason. We have a new teenager in the house. <laughs> Graham turned 13. And he will tell you at 7.10 this morning was his 13th birthday. And so uh, we belong to the wellness center, I know you can tell, uh, for uh, quite a while, but you can't use the weight room until you're 13. And so to celebrate Graham's birthday, we began by having a father-son workout this morning, which sounded like a really good idea before I went, and uh, now I'm feeling like I just like to sit down on a pew and have a little bit of a nap. So if I'm not worried about you falling asleep as much as if I start falling asleep, you have to wake me up. But the story we're going to look at this morning, I don't think that's possible uh, for that to happen. How many of you can think of a time in your life where you found yourself in a situation where you've been confronted with somebody who needs your help, needs your assistance, needs you to, to give them aid, and you know they need help, uh, and you're hoping someone's going to help them, but you're not really sure you're the person who should be the one giving the help because of potential implications or, or perhaps because of what it was going to cost you. I've asked myself this question a lot this week. And uh, I can think of a situation, and it happened over 30 years ago. And honestly, I can say that a year does not go by where I'm not bothered by a situation that I found myself in. I was at a Toronto Maple Leaf hockey game uh, with a friend. We were coming home. We were at the subway station. And we came across kind of like a mob gathering. But in the center of this mob was an elderly gentleman who was being, I guess the best way to describe it, bullied, antagonized uh, uh, by two young guys. And uh, we're, we're making fun of him, we're, we're pretending that they were going to hit him, uh, we're assaulting him verbally for sure. And I can still vividly see myself in that situation thinking, I need to do something. I'm bigger than both those guys. No one else is doing anything. They may hurt this elderly gentleman. And as I was faced with the question, do I get involved? I could think of so many excuses not to get involved. What if they were stronger than me? What had taken place before we came across the scene? Maybe this elderly gentleman deserved what they were getting. What if the police arrive on the scene and I get involved in an altercation. What if I miss our subway train? And I'm sad to tell you that that was the reason my friend and I left the confrontation as it was going on because we didn't want to miss the subway train that was pulling in to the station uh, down by the old Maple Leaf Gardens. And I realized as I was thinking about this week, we're constantly confronted with the question, do we want to get involved? 
And it could be as we're watching TV and we see commercials for World Vision or or Compassion International. Uh, there's the one that I often see about the, uh, the elderly Jewish people living in Russia and the support that they need. We've had Teen Challenge come here numerous times. We've got people involved with Youth Unlimited, Youth for Christ, who are appealing uh, for assistance. We've had the kids going to the creek camps who have asked uh, for assistance. We drive down the street and we see people with a flat tire. We see a neighbor who's struggling to move something or to do a chore. And we're confronted with the question, do we get involved? And often we can find excuses not to get involved, not to, to offer a hand. Maybe we're too busy. Maybe we're afraid to get involved. Maybe the potential cost is too much. And so we choose not to get involved. American psychologists actually have a term to describe people who choose not to get involved in the most extreme situations. And they call it the Kitty Genovese Syndrome. And uh, three or four years ago, I shared this syndrome with you, but I'm going to share it with you again because it's really applicable to the story I want to look at this morning. In 1964, a lady by the name of Kitty Genovese uh, was coming home, and as she was going towards her apartment, was attacked. Uh, and this attacker was bent on ending her life and started stabbing her. And she screamed out that she was being attacked, that she had been stabbed, that this person was going to kill her. Uh, and a neighbor yelled out the window, leave her alone. And the attacker backed off. But nothing else happened. And so the attacker moved back in and continued his assault. Three times he backed off and then went back for the attack until finally he had ended Kitty Genevieve's life. It was then and only then and only after one of the eyewitnesses called a friend and asked, should I get involved? And the friend said, yes, call the police. That's when the police got called. And as the police investigated this crime, they realized there were 38 eyewitnesses to the crime. And not one person chose to get involved. The attacker was asked, I guess the murderer was asked, why did you keep coming back? And he said, because I knew no one would do anything about it. They never do. And American psychologists coined the term the Kitty Genevieve syndrome. When eyewitnesses to a tragic event choose not to get involved. And you know, the Kitty Genevieve story, it's, it sounds like a familiar story. I think it, it sounds familiar to us for a couple of reasons. One, I think because this idea or this response of, of, of not wanting to be involved resonates with some of us. We get it. We understand it. We've been there. That's been our response. But, but it also sounds kind of like a story that we've heard before. Although the details are a little bit different. It's almost like a, a Hollywood remake uh, of, of one of the greatest stories ever told. A story that Jesus himself told. The story about the good Samaritan. A well-known story. 
people inside and, and outside of the church are very familiar with the story. And, and if we were pressed uh, and asked, well, what is the point, what is the purpose of Jesus telling the story of the Good Samaritan, my guess is most of us, uh, our, our first response would be, well, well, Jesus is talking about who it is that is our neighbor and, and how we can be good neighbors. But this morning, I want us to consider this story and I want us to see it for something more. Not just about being a good neighbor. Not just answering the question, who is our neighbor? But I want us to see how Jesus, as he confronts this person in the setting where he tells this story about the Good Samaritan, Jesus points out the error of believing that someone can have a right relationship with God by earning it through their good works. The story is found in Luke chapter 10, and if uh, you've got a Bible, turn to it. And we're going to follow along the story, and I want to take a look at the, the full story. Often when uh, people speak on the Good Samaritan, they, they kind of start halfway through the, the setting, the story that's taking place. And I think they miss a very uh, important uh, part of the story. It kind of wraps it up quite nicely. So Luke chapter 10, and we're going to begin on verse, or begin uh, at uh, verse 25. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. You know, that the, the expert in the law, your Bible may say a lawyer, Reminds me of a guy that went to my high school. Uh, his name was Brandon. And no one messed with Brandon. Uh, he was a street fighter. Uh, back in my high school days, if you were trying to be cool, you wore jeans tucked into your Kodiak Greb work boots, uh, and you wore a lumber jacket. Well, Brandon, he wore that, but he did his work boots up had his pants over top of the work boots. And if you asked him why, he would tell you, because it's better to kick a person that way. You don't have loose boots. That was the kind of guy that Brendan was. No one messed with Brendan. We got a new person to our school. His name was Min. He didn't dress like those of us who were trying to be cool. He wore I don't know what kind of designer jeans back in the late 70s, what, what, what that would be called. I wasn't really a fashion plate in high school. But uh, he wore these designer jeans, and he wore these kind of sneakers that like, my mom used to wear when she was doing gardening. And he would wear a very dressy kind of a sweater. And on this one particular day, he bumped into Brandon. And it was right out uh, in the middle of all the portables at the high school I went to. 
And everyone gathered around, and we knew Brandon was going to beat the tar out of men. And Brandon wound up to give one knockout punch. And he threw a punch at men. And faster than you can imagine, men blocked the punch and kicked Brandon in the head with his sneakers. And Brandon was down on the ground. Brandon thought he was going to deliver a knockout punch. He left that situation with his tail between his legs. And that's what happened verbally to the lawyer, to the expert in the law in this situation. He came to confront Jesus. It says he came to test Jesus. He thought he was going to deliver a knockout punch to Jesus. And Jesus verbally kicks him in the head with his sandals leaving him totally confused. Now, he's an expert in the law. He's a lawyer, but he's not an expert in Roman law. He's not an attorney. He's an expert in religious law. And so he's been trained in theology. Most, most likely, he is a proven debater. And he's come to test Jesus. And on the surface, it, it, it would appear, and I've, I've kind of set this up, that it was a real negative confrontation. It sounds like he's coming to ask Jesus a, a, a real reasonable question, a good question. I mean, those of us who, who try to share our faith, we know how nice it is when someone comes up to us and says, hey, can you tell me, how do I obtain eternal life? That's the kind of questions that we want to be asked. But despite the fact that on the surface it appears that this expert in the law uh, is, is, is an eager uh, seeker, he really isn't. Now, I don't know if he's volunteered to confront Jesus or whether he, he drew the shortest straw. But most likely this expert in the law has been sent by the, the establishment, the religious establishment, who are, who are quite concerned about Jesus at this point. Jesus and his growing popularity, this, this unorthodox, this unapproved country preacher. And so they've sent this expert in the law to probe, to inspect Jesus. To get to the bottom of what Jesus is teaching and then compare it to the bottom line of, of Judaism. And, and to see where Jesus has, has gone wrong. To, to be able to point out the error uh, in his teaching. He wants to... Make Jesus say something foolish. He wants people to see where what Jesus is teaching, the system that he's promoting, does not line up with Judaism. And so despite appearances, he really isn't interested in being taught. In fact, He's really not interested in the answer that Jesus is going to give to the question because he already has his mind made up when it comes to the answer to the question. But he asks the question, how can I obtain or what must I do to inherit eternal life? And negative motivations aside, we have to admit, that's a pretty critical question. In fact, it's the, the most important question that concerns the human heart. What must one do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, this expert in the law, he already would have had his mind made up. Inheriting, earning, achieving eternal life, attaining a right relationship with God is obtained by by following a a prescribed set of of meritous uh, routines and, and religious rituals. Salvation is by works. But he knows that every religion has its own answer to that question. So again, hoping that he can trip up Jesus. Hoping that Jesus will will spew some heresy. He wants to know what Jesus says. But to his dismay, Jesus doesn't answer his question. Well, he does, but he answers it with a question. He responds to his question with a question. And he tells this expert in the Old Testament law to go back to the Old Testament as as the authority where we'll find the answer to the question. And you tell me what you think. You're the expert in the law. What do you think? And so this expert in the law gives his answer. And he says, you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And if you've got footnotes on the bottom of your Bible, you'll see that that's Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. It's a call to undivided loyalty to God. Undivided faithfulness to God. And he continues and he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And again, if you've got footnotes in the bottom of the page, you'll see that that's Leviticus 19 verse 18, which is an expression of God's will for his people. Highlighting the fact that the biblical faith is not primarily about following a set of, of prescribed religious rituals, but rather true biblical faith is about a heart relationship with God. A relationship that is to shape every other facet of our life. A relationship that's supposed to shape our relationships with other people. In fact, uh, our relationship with God is really inseparable from our relationship with others. And so the expert in the law answers the question of Jesus by using these two quotations from the Old Testament. And Jesus commends him for his answer. And then he says something that's really startling. Do this and you'll live. And we've got to stop because it almost sounds like Jesus is teaching salvation by works. That if you can follow this command and if you can follow that command, well, that you will have eternal life. That's how you will get to heaven. That's how you can have a right relationship with God. And in a way, that's what Jesus is saying. If you want to be justified under the law, well, you can, hypothetically, but you have to be perfect. You perfectly have to follow these commands. So what Jesus is saying to this expert in the law, you want to get to heaven? That's great. Follow God's standard and you'll get to heaven. And God's standard is perfection. And at that, you know that the expert in the law is cringing. He knows 
we know we can't perfectly love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our mind. He knows he slipped up. He knows he's failed. And Jesus is saying, you want to get to heaven? You want to be justified by the law? It requires perfection. And oh, you've messed up? That's too bad. God doesn't grade with a bell curve. The reality is none of us can live up to that standard. Paul said that that all of us sin. All of us fall short of that standard. And if we want to be justified under the law, none of us make it. We are without hope. And when it comes to this, this, this obtaining eternal life and, and having a right relationship with God, we need an alternate solution. Well, if the lawyer, this expert in the law, was cringing, he's now sweating buckets. He's gotten way more uh, than he was bargaining for. He's painted himself into a corner. He set out to trap Jesus. He wanted Jesus to say something foolish. He wanted Jesus to say something where he could go, yeah, but look, here's here's how we believe and, and you're wrong. You're heretical. But he discovers that what Jesus is promoting is a relationship, a heart relationship with God that shapes a person's life. What Jesus is promoting is is that salvation is not achieved or attained or earned by works. But rather eternal life is received through being in relationship with God. But worst of all, this this lawyer, this this expert in, in the Old Testament law, he's trapped himself. The systems of salvation that he's promoting is that that one can can obtain eternal life, can have a right relationship with God by doing this, 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 and this. And Jesus has just pointed out to him that it's impossible, that nobody can do it. And so this lawyer, he's, he's set out to condemn Jesus. And in doing that, he's condemned himself. And he's condemned everybody else. And he suddenly realized, in trying to trip up Jesus by asking this question, what must a person do to obtain eternal life? He's discovered that what he has thought all along to be the answer is no answer at all. In fact, his answer is impossible and leaves him with no hope. That's why it says in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus another question. And understand this, he wants to justify himself. It means he wants to take the eyes of self-examination off of himself. He's feeling really uncomfortable. And so he needs to divert the topic of conversation. And so he says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? 
And so the story continues. In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's important that we note once again the insincerity of the question that the lawyer asks Jesus. Who is my neighbor? And as I said at the outset, I mean, this is a story that grips people in the church and outside of the church. And this, who is my neighbor? That's, that's what people understand. This is the question that Jesus sets out to answer. But this lawyer is not really even being sincere in asking the question because he already has an answer to the question. And he's not really too concerned exactly about what Jesus has to say if it's going to be different than what he thinks. You see, when the, when the lawyer recited uh, or repeated the words of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself, what he really meant was love your Jewish neighbor as yourself. This, this, this expert in, in the Old Testament law had a very tight definition of who his neighbor was. And it certainly would not have included a Gentile. It wouldn't have included an unclean Jew. And it definitely would not have included a Samaritan. And so what he's really asking Jesus is who can I ignore? Who can I choose not to get involved with? Who is it that doesn't have a claim to my time and my resources? What he wants Jesus to do is to draw a circle. And a real tight circle at that. A circle that involved everyone inside the circle, and that's who Jesus is saying who his neighbor is. And that's who you should be involved with. That's who you should expend time and resources to. And then everyone outside of that tight circle, you're, you're okay to ignore. They're not your neighbor. They're excluded. But we're going to see that Jesus draws a really big circle. Really big. In fact, I don't think we can even see its edges. 
And you know, I think it's easy for us to, when we understand the lawyer's motivation, to go, what a horrible question. To really want to know who it is that's outside of the circle. Where, what are the limits? Where is it okay for us to ignore? Yet how many of us have already drawn our own circle? And if we were pressed and we really thought of it, we could think of the people within our circle. Those that we're okay with lending a helping hand. Those that we choose to get involved with. But we can also think of the people outside of our circle. And some of our circles are more tighter than others. But are there people who are outside our circle? So let's not get all uh, over this expert in the law, because I think it's a very applicable question to ask ourselves, to consider the circle that we've drawn ourselves. And so we ask this question to Jesus, and Jesus tells him a story. It says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. We don't really know who this man was. Uh, it's a parable. It's a story. We, we're not sure who Jesus is intending us to understand who this man was. Uh, I'm guessing we're supposed to think that it was a Jewish man, but it doesn't really matter. It was a man who found himself in need. And it says that he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 17-mile windy road where you're covering about 3,000 feet of altitude. And there's all sorts of hiding places on this windy road where would-be robbers can hide and attack unsuspecting travelers. And that's what's happened. A man traveling down this windy road, uh, and it's called the Bloody Way, has been attacked, robbed, and he's left for dead. And then Jesus tells us of two people that pass by. Uh, one, uh, a priest. A priest who, who fulfills uh, duties at the temple. Probably been there all week. Actively involved in worship. Possibly he's on his way home. And a Levite. A person of the tribe of Levi. Who also would have been involved in duties at the temple. Who would have served other than at the altar. Probably were to figure that he's on his way home as well. And as Jesus tells a story, and there's this man who's laying on the road, beaten and left for dead, the priest and the Levites see him cross to the other side of the bloody way, and they keep going on their way. Why don't they stop? Jesus doesn't tell us. He doesn't, he doesn't give us this detail. But just like we can think of our own excuses to choose not to be involved, I'm sure they had their excuses. It's been a long week. They were tired. They wanted to get home. They were late. If they were any later, the supper was going to be cold. Perhaps they looked and they figured there's nothing that they could do. That someone else is going to come by this beaten left for dead person on the road who would be able to provide better help. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe they thought it was a trap. 
Maybe the last time they'd stopped and helped someone that, that wasn't of the same quality of life as them, that they were, they were ridiculed by their, by their fellow priests or Levites. Maybe they didn't want to get their garment dirty. They didn't want to be ceremonially unclean. Whatever the reason, they saw him, they crossed to the other side and continued on their way. And the irony of the story at this point is that these two individuals, the priest and the Levite, they probably spent all week worshiping God. They would say that they loved God. And yet it's against the backdrop of those very things that their choice to not get involved seems even that much worse. And we have to consider their response. They chose to, to look the other way. Reminds me of what happens when I go to the mailbox and I get my bills. But it's not quite time for me to pay bills. Especially the one that says Hydro One. And I go, I'm not looking at it. It's kind of silly because it's not going to change what it is. But I just choose to put it in a pile. I'm not even going to look at it. I'm going to put it out of my mind. And I, I'll think about it when I have to think about it. That's their response. You know, I don't see him. I don't see him. I'm carrying on home. I can hardly wait to have supper. But there's a third individual in the story. Jesus says a, a Samaritan happens to be going down that same path. And you've got to understand, the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like the Jews. If you went back in the Old Testament, you would, you would see that when, when Israel is conquered by Assyria, they disperse all the Jews and they invite Gentiles into Israel to, to intermingle and to intermarry with the Jewish people. And so you have all these half-breeds. Half-Jew, half-Samaritan. Half-Jew, half-you-name-the-nation. When Judah is conquered by Babylon, Babylon doesn't disperse them, but rather keeps them pure and amongst themselves. And, and years later, when, when the Jews that were conquered from Babylon go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, they meet up with, with half-Jew, half-Samaritans in Jerusalem. And, and if you read in, in certain texts in the Old Testament, there's a lot of hostility and opposition. And that carried on to the day of Jesus. The Jews considered the Samaritans to be half-breeds uh, half half as far as religion and race was concerned, uh, that they defiled the temple, they distorted the law, they degraded worship. And yet, in an unbelievable twist, that's who Jesus makes out to be the hero of the story. It, it, it's the Samaritan 
who sees exactly what the priest and the Levites saw, but chooses to do the things that we read in the text, to look after this, this, this individual, to get him help, to, to put him in lodging and, and, and to pay and, and to come back and, and to make sure that he's okay. The Samaritan didn't see anything different, but he felt something different. The text says that he felt pity. He had pity on this injured man. And this word pity is a really strong word in the Greek. Your, your translation may say compassion. It's, it's emotion that drives motion. That how he felt when he saw the plight of this individual drove him to action. And what's really interesting is the only other time that the word pity is used in Scripture in the New Testament is when the gospel writers are talking about Jesus, that he had pity, that he had compassion. And so this expert in the law comes to Jesus and he asks two questions. And both times he asks the question, Jesus responds with a question. And when the expert in the law gives his answer, both times Jesus says that phrase that would have made the expert in the law wiggle. Go and do likewise. And in doing so, Jesus twists the table, turns the table on this expert in the law. And he gives us some very uh, crucial answers to some very important questions. The first question being, who is our neighbor? As I said, the expert in the law had a very focused and tight definition of who his neighbor should be, who he considered his neighbor to be. But when Jesus answers him, we realize that Jesus blows that tight focus apart. And Jesus says, you see all the hurting people around you? Those are your neighbors. As someone has said, the world is your neighbor. That we need to do whatever we can, whenever we can, however we can, with whatever we can, with God's help, to show God's mercy and compassion to those around us. Bob Deffenbaugh, who's a, who's a preacher who, who is uh, involved in the ministry with Chuck Giannotti, uh, uh, in one of his sermons, he shares an illustration of a seminary class uh, from a, a, a seminary in the U.S., uh, and uh, they did a test. They told the students that they were to prepare a message on the Good Samaritan and that they were going to share that message over the seminary's radio broadcast. And each student, as they individually have prepared and they're making their way to wherever they were going to do this radio broadcast, are confronted with someone who is an actor who pretends to have a heart attack. And in every instance that this took place, the student, as quick as they could, left because they had to get to the radio broadcast to do their sermon. What is it that needs to change in our life so that we are not people who choose to cross to the other side? 
You see, the ultimate question is not who is our neighbor. The ultimate question is whose neighbor are we? And it seems very clear that the teaching of Jesus is that our neighbor includes even those who are mean to us, who oppose us, who are strangers to us, who live really different than us. Those are our neighbors. Those are who we are neighbors to. Another question that Jesus answers is, what is love? And we see from the story that love is not just some sentimental feeling, but rather it's a sacrificial action, seasoned with grace and and mercy, that results in a willingness to, to interrupt our schedule, to expand our resources, to risk our reputation, maybe even ruin our property, even for a stranger, so that we can do our best for them. As we show God's mercy and His love to others. And so I ask a question that you need to grapple with as well, and so do I. What needs to change in our lives? What what do we need to do so that in our life we can demonstrate that kind of love? And then the final question that Jesus answers is, how can we obtain eternal life? And it's it's kind of obvious. When we read between the lines, Jesus is saying that, that the expert of the law is wrong. That if you want to obtain eternal life through works by by keeping the law perfectly, you're going to fail. And there's no hope for you. That's not how you can uh, obtain eternal life and have a right relationship with God because he demands perfection. And we're all sinners. And so Jesus came and and he preached a way of grace. That there is another solution. And God sent that solution in the person of Jesus. And that Jesus came to pay the price for our sin. And that we can receive eternal life and forgiveness of our sin by asking Jesus into our heart and putting our faith and trust in what Jesus has done for us. And so that's an obvious answer to the question that Jesus gives us. But how do these two parts connect? Like I could have preached two different sermons. This, who's my neighbor and how do I turn, obtain eternal life? Where's the connection? Why did Jesus tell the story? Why is this all connected? Here's the connection. Even though you can't obtain eternal life by trying to keep the law through works, you'll always fail. There are people who believe that they can. And those who believe that they can obtain eternal life and have a right relationship with God based on what they do, in that way of salvation, there is no room for compassion or mercy. Because that way is filled with pride and and arrogance and self-righteousness. But in the way that Jesus is promoting, and and I I heard it in so many of the songs we sang this morning, the way of grace, where we stand before God and say, God, I can't do it on my own. I fail. I can't live up to your standard of perfection. In that way of grace, there is no room for pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. 
Because it's a way of mercy. It's a way of compassion. And that's the connection. We are to love our neighbors as God loved us. Because grace drives compassion. And when we understand that connection, then we we can see what a beautiful picture we have in the story of the Good Samaritan that gives us ultimately a picture of Jesus in the gospel. Because we were just like that traveler. From the days of Adam and Eve, we have walked away from God in sin and in rejection, and our enemy has beaten us and has abused us and has left us for dead. And Jesus, the Good Samaritan, has come. And he has chosen not to walk on the other side, but he has chosen to come and to rescue us where we're at and to mend our wounds and to pick us up and to pay our debts and to promise us and guarantee us a wonderful future. And that, my friends, gives great hope for those of you who are here who might be feeling broken and bruised and hurt, who might be feeling that you've been left uh, lonely and, and hopeless and helpless, who feel like sin has been the victor. That isn't the end of the story. The good Samaritan, Jesus, has come to your rescue. Won't you trust in him this morning? Praise team.